man of many talents. This is all strictly confidential. The Lost Ark. It's like nothing you've ever gone after before. That cautious fellow, aren't Do you realize what the Ark is? Hey everyone, how are we doing tonight? Thanks for joining me I'm here on another Milk and Meat. Uh, this is here on Kingdom in Context. I'm Sean Griffin, and uh, sorry for the technical delays there. Just trying to get this figured out um, <laughs> to to bring in the intro. So yes, many of you are wondering. That's just a face swap app that I use to take my face and put it onto Indiana Jones. So that's um, that's all that was. It just didn't do it very well. Couldn't I couldn't actually get the, the details lined up too well with the app. But basically, um, we are in search of the Ark of the Covenant tonight. It's going to be this is a, a really fun, a really fun study, in my opinion, because um, while we unfortunately can't go to uh, remote locations with advanced filming, um, we're going to be doing this from our, our live stream tonight. So I want to thank you guys for joining us because we um, we're going to go through the scriptures as we try to figure out the prop, what happened to the ark. And there's actual prophecy about the ark. And a lot of people kind of either don't under, don't know it's never been shown to them or they just have uh, never read it. And so we're going to read some of those scriptures tonight. I want to say hello to everyone that's joined us in the chat and we appreciate you being here. Um, looks like we have a lively chat already. Uh, get righteous. So three or three Shabbat Shalom, David Shear, Welcome brother. Shabbat Shalom, Clayton Linhart, Tony, Vicky lot. Welcome. Shabbat Shalom, Brooke Penny, uh, Wendy Russell, Donna Flinky, David. Let me see here. Um, Lindsay Wilkins, 25 or L Wilkins. I should say 25. Um, Miss Peggy D. Welcome. Chauncey Lump. Welcome. And blue doves be light. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining me. I hope you all had a good week. Hope you're getting ready to have a really good Shabbat. And if, you, if you're if you watching this and and uh, you observe Shabbat, that's just uh, the fourth commandment. It's just, you know, the Father has instructed us to take a day off from working and to rest. And it's a full 24-hour period. And we uh, many of you are celebrating that. So Shabbat Shalom to you. If you're not, you're welcome to check out some of our other broadcasts and some of our other videos on this channel. And we kind of review the idea of how the instructions of God are just his behaviors. And he keeps these behaviors himself in heaven above. So it's very consistent as far as instruction to mankind. And since his behavior never changes, therefore, the instructions for his behavior to us never changes and so Yeshua followed the same behavior. He kept Shabbats and, and took a day off of rest once a week. And uh, we do the same. We practice his behavior because that is how we disciple after our, our Lord and our Messiah, Yeshua. So I just want to thank everyone for being here. Uh, Ryan Hicks of Benjamin DOC, welcome. Shabbat Shalom. Kingdom Truther, welcome. Charlie Hanscom, welcome. 
Uh, Diana Barden and Yahweh and Judy Gonzalez, Andy Pandy, welcome. Welcome, everybody. I appreciate y'all being here. Uh, EFTUPWRLD, welcome. All right. So tonight, um, put in the chat, anybody, if you, who, does anyone know, does anyone know where the Ark of the Covenant is? I mean, I'm not expecting you to draw a map or anything, but put it in the chat if you have an idea where you think the Ark of the Covenant is. Um, we're going to actually go over the scriptures tonight. And many of you, like I like I put in the teaser intro from Indiana Jones clips, did you see the part of Belloc where it says uh, that the guy in the in the movie Indiana Jones, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, his name was Belloc. He was the guy with the white shirt and the hat that's talking to Indy. Um, he is one of the bad guys, but he, he says, do you realize what the Ark of the Covenant is? And uh, and that's, it's an interesting, it's kind of, you know, how Hollywood, they like to put in all their duality and their um, hidden meanings. So it's interesting that his character's name is Belloc, which I think is the king of the Midianites. Um, and that was the gentleman that tried to tell Balaam to curse Israel back in Numbers, um, Numbers 22. So I just think that's interesting because uh, no, no, no. Belloc was in, in Indiana Jones. Belloc was a French explorer. He ends up becoming bad because he ends up working for the Nazis, but um, he was a French uh, archeologist like Indiana. And he, uh, he, <laughs> he ends up turning bad, but I just think it's interesting um, that they gave him that name, which I think is, I don't know. It's really wild. So we've got a couple of ideas here. Um, okay. I want to say we have some newcomers to the chat, James Henry. Uh, welcome, Miss Cindy Hoglin. Welcome, Shabbat Shalom. And uh, we've and then we've got Bill Craddock. Welcome, Tony. Welcome. So we've already got about three or four different answers. Some people are saying that they believe uh, Jimmy James, and is also okay. So we got about four or five different answers. I was asking, where do we even think that the Ark of the Covenant is? And it looks like uh, Miss. Uh, we got one answer that says Mount Ararat. Uh, another answer that says Jeremiah's Grotto, another answer that says Ethiopia, another answer that saying the firmament. Um, someone else su suggests it's in Jerusalem in a cave. Someone else says it's in the Tabernacle of Yah, um, which I guess would be similar to the other answer that it's in the firmament above. And another person says it's buried by the angels. And... Um, so yeah, there's a lot of interesting. Yeah, I know Jimmy James is, is bringing up Ron Wyatt and what he claims to have already found it, and that's actually a really wild claim, right? Because we're, you know, <laughs> did you already find it? That's interesting because if he already found it, where is it? Why is it not being put on display? Why is no one? Why is there people still looking for it? But more than anything, what did the scriptures say? That's what we. That's the famous. We, we probably should actually just get a t-shirt that says, what are the scriptures say? Because I end up saying that like all the time. We hear what has been passed down to us. We hear answers to questions that have been passed down to us through people we respect or, you know, other teachers or pastors or our parents or things like that. But many times it's not what the scriptures say because that answer was passed down to them too. And it's just being repeated generationally. So I think it's interesting. Like tonight, we're going to actually look at what the scriptures say about where this thing possibly is and why and will we ever see it again and i'm going to suggest yes we are going to see it again that's part of the prophecy but there's a specific timing so let's look let's look at that um 
<laughs> Someone else said it's in Qumran. Jeremiah dropped it off. Uh, Simcoder, welcome. Psalm 119, welcome. Thanks for being here. Uh, Line within us, welcome. Thanks for being here. Yahweh King Yusuf Enochian Bible, welcome. Um, so yeah, it's there's a lot of speculation, right? We've got what six or seven just in this small chat right now. We have six or seven people trying to guess where in the world is the Ark of the Covenant. But let's uh, let's start digging into the scriptures, and we will go. We'll go to what the scriptures say about this topic, and we're going to look at it kind of in depth. Okay, guys, um, I don't have a ton of ton of scriptures, but the ones that we're going to look at, we're going to. I'm going to not. I'm going to address some circumstantial details about the ark that is really important that I've seen people question over time when they ask about this topic. There's always a, but yeah, but what about this? But what about this? So we're going to try to address some of that stuff tonight. Second Kings 25, one through five. And it says, now in the 10th year of his reign, on the 10th day of the 10th month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon came, he and all his army against Jerusalem. They camped against it and built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month of the famine was so severe in the city, there was no food for the people of the land, and the city was broken into, and all the men of the war, all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls beside the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were all around the city, and they went by way of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered before him. So this is in Jeremiah 25, 1 through 9. And I just want you to take note, everyone, that in this passage here, we actually have... Um, oh, one second. If you guys haven't already subscribed, please do. I forgot to hit the subscribe. Uh, tell you guys to subscribe. If you haven't uh, already subscribed to this channel, make sure you uh, do that before the, the broadcast is over. Please, if you enjoyed with the content that we're doing tonight, give a thumbs up, drop a comment, and um, and share it on social media. That way, other people can be blessed by it. So we appreciate you. And as always, um, if you want to access these slides that I prepared tonight with the scriptures and and the different pictures and graphs and different things that I make every week, you can access those on Patreon. And that, and that site is the at Patreon backslash Kingdom in Context. It should be on the screen below. So the reason why I chose 2 Kings 25 is because in 2 Kings 25, we have some unique details about Nebuchadnezzar sieging in the ninth year of his reign. And it, and it said the city was under siege for some time, and then it was until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. So what's interesting is that they... If you guys aren't familiar, when they siege an ancient city, they would surround it. They would try to cut off its water food supply. And so this, you'd basically starve the people out. It was an easy way to, to um, well, it wasn't always easy, but it was an effective way, let's put it like that, against ancient city nations who used to build huge walls around their city to enclose themselves off. And that's the armies would just circumvent the whole place, try to starve them out. Um, and this is actually, this moment here was prophesied by Isaiah earlier when he was talking about you're, you know, you're going to get to a point where you're eating your own children because you're going to be starving. So this is a point where Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon from Chaldea, uh, he comes over with an army and he's trying to actually siege and overcome the city of Jerusalem. And he does. So he actually comes in. But what's interesting is the, uh, what I want everyone to take note of, it says that he built a siege wall all around it. And it says um, the city was broken into. Okay, because we're going to read a little bit later in 2 Kings 25, 8 through 15, we read that there's a secondary invasion about 10 years later. And this is where Nebuchadnezzar actually destroys the walls fully. 
And there's something that happens in between those two time periods. So within that 10 year period, this is where we're going to have something that's significant to Jeremiah and to Baruch. And that's what happens after this first invasion that we see in verses one through five. But as I'm going to read real quick later on down, as we read in verses eight through 15, it skips ahead 10 years. It says now on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of the King Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, he came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Even every great house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were there, or excuse me, who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the people, Nebuzaradan, the, king, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. That's an important point. We're going to get that in a minute. Now the bronze pillars which were in the house of the Lord, and the stands in the bronze sea which were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. They took away the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the spoons, and all the bronze vessels which were used in temple service. The captain of the guard also took away the fire pans and the basins which was fine gold and what was fine silver. That's an important point is what they actually took on the secondary attempt of where it wasn't really an attempt. The second time the armies of Babylon came against Jerusalem 10 years after King Zedekiah was taken. The second time is when they took all this gold and silver and all this stuff. And this is when they burned everything down. The first time they broke into the city is a little bit different. The second time they came, they burned, they destroyed all the walls, what would be called raising them. They're raising them, meaning they destroyed them to the ground. Uh, there's two different ways you can use the word raise. So they, they raised it to the ground. They took all the gold and silver, basically. Um, some of the things that were in the temple or the treasury of the temple. And we're, we're going to read about that here in a minute. This passage is also covered. Everything I've been reading for First Kings 25 is also covered in Jeremiah 52. All right. Pretty much the bulk of the chapter. So um, let me check the chat real quick. See how everyone's doing. Yeah, guys, hit the like button if you haven't already. Appreciate it. And um, I just want to thank you all moderators for being here. And uh, for helping us out, you know, keeping the chat civil and loving. All right, guys, I'm going to I'm going to read a few more verses here. We'll get back to it. All right. First Kings seven. We're going to jump back a little bit and we're going to get some more detail because we saw the the idea where the Babylonians have broken into Jerusalem. Now, let's go back and see what was in Jerusalem when they broke into it. And we just read in, in the latter portion of First Kings 25 that they had taken all these articles of gold and silver. Well, let's look at 1 Kings 7, 48 through 51. This is where Solomon made them and put them in the temple and in the treasuries. It says, Solomon made all the furniture which was in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table, on which was the bread of the presence, the lampstands, five on the right side, five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary of pure gold, and the flowers and the lamps and the tongs of gold, the cups and the snuffers and the bowls, the spoons and the fire pans of pure gold, the hinges both for the doors of the inner house and the most holy place. Those are some expensive hinges. And for the doors of the house, that is, of the nave of gold. Thus, all the work that King Solomon performed in the house of the Lord was finished, and, the Sol and Solomon brought in the things dedicated by his father David, the silver and the gold and the utensils, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So let's go down to 1 Kings 8. A few verses later, next chapter, verses 5 through 11, And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the Ark, over the place 
the ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles from above. But the poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside. They are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the cloud of the Lord filled the filled the house of the Lord. All right, everyone, I'm going to have a question for you in the chat. So we looked at, um, we looking at this, this unique passage, okay, about Solomon. He's making all this interesting stuff for the temple that's been built, all the particular utensils and, and tools that they needed to do the service of the temple. And while they're dedicating it, there's a unique phrase that's put in here that there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets, which Moses put, put there at work. So let me know in the chat, where do you guys think happened to the, to the rod that budded that they put in the ark? And also uh, the manna. You remember they put the manna in a jar and they put that in the ark as well. So those supposedly were the three things that were originally in the ark back in the wilderness. And this is what is spoken about in Hebrews. I think it's Hebrews chapter five. So question for anyone in the chat. Do you guys remember a verse where they took that budded rod of Aaron or that manna and they took it out of the ark of the covenant at some point? So let me know if anyone has any ideas. Because I can't remember one. And if, I, if I've overlooked it, please put it in the chat. But while I was doing the study, I couldn't find it. Um, so let me know if, if you guys have any ideas on where those may be or when those may be taken out. So I don't see anyone answering right off the bat. So I'm just going to guess uh, maybe either someone's researching it or they don't know yet. Not sure. All right. So basically, keep that in your mind that there's already things that are that I guess what I'm trying to say is even by the time we get to Solomon's day, the Ark of the Covenant is not in its original capacity. Yet, as we just read in first Kings chapter eight, the glory of the Lord drops down in this house, fills the house. The servants and the priests have to leave because the glory of the Lord is so strong when they are inaugurating the temple and it's being ordained by the father, him putting his stamp on it, if you will, saying, this is the place where I put my name. And it doesn't have the original things they put in the ark a long time ago. So I guess what I'm trying to say is there's already people, there's already, I guess what we're trying to address is the idea that the ark of the covenant has been touted many times by, um, denominations and, and like Hebrew root uh, denominations and um, Torah observance uh, ministries will be touted that this was like the, the creme de la creme, like the ultimate, you can't touch it, can't mess with it. Even, I mean, obviously the scriptures tell us only certain priests were allowed to touch it uh, through the Levites. Um, otherwise people would die if they were not allowed to touch it under specific instructions. But I'm talking about like, clearly the people that could touch it were taking stuff in and out of it. They were doing things with it. They were moving it around. We know that, but they were actually apparently doing stuff with it. Now think about all the time that we have from the, the time that when the children of Israel come into the land and they're under the command of Joshua, and then we get the rest of the book of Joshua. They have a lot of war. 
but they don't fully drive out all the inhabitants of the land. Those inhabitants would then become a snare to the Israelites, as was prophesied in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy. But then also we have uh, the angel telling them in Judges chapter 2, because you guys haven't driven these guys out, that you're going to start, your sons and daughters will rebel, transgress the covenant, start worshiping their idols. And um, and then the people are mourning because they they are living around remnants of the Canaanites that had always been there, the Amorites, the Hittites, all these different clans, the Amalekites. And we see them fighting against those people and being subjugated and oppressed by those people from time to time, all the way up until the days of David. Here in like First uh, Samuel, all the way up to First Samuel chapter 32. So what's interesting is that the ark is used a few times during battle when all this is going down. And it makes me wonder, um, the only people that we know that opened the ark were the Philistines. You guys remember that? When the Philistines captured the ark during the days of David? So what we just read in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon, that's David's son. So this is years after Solomon's already been made king. David's dead. Solomon's now taking over the construction project that the Lord gave the plans to David. And he's, gonna, he's built the house of the Lord. And now they're filling it up and they're inaugurating it with the wonderful sacrifice, joy and celebration. And they got an ark that just has the tablets in it, but no budded rod and no manna. So it makes me wonder, is that where it all went? Did the Philistines take out the budded rod and the manna, but left in the tablets because at that point it was already killing people? But we know that the Philistines had it for a certain amount of time. And then that finally, you know, they gave it back because it was causing tumors and they're, you know, they were freaking out. So it's very interesting, right? Um, at the same time, we don't know if someone else in Israel, through all the reprobate kings they had during the days of the judges, if they messed with the containment, uh, the, what the contents of the Ark of the Covenant. But the point is, guys, even with the Ark of the Covenant, not being as it was in the possession of, of Moses and Aaron. The father is still dropping in great capacity to inaugurate the place where he puts his name, you know, the, the idiomatic place of the soles of his feet would reside. He's still dropping to, to show that he approves of what's going on here. And the Ark of the Covenant at this moment is still being revered as the utmost, uh, what what I've talked about in the past, what Revelation 21 of the Greek explains is that it's the shrine. It's the place that represents the place where, where God would be sitting, but he's not there. So it's considered a shrine. It's not a pagan shrine. No, it's just the word shrine is used in different ways. It's just the, the idea that it is the representation that this, this golden box with the cherub over it is the representation of the throne, like we've talked about in the past where the Almighty would sit, where we're going to see the, all, the Son and the Father sit in some capacity when the New Jerusalem descends. So the idea is that even though it's not at the, its original intent, you've got the Father still blessing it. And there's a reason for that. All right, This is, this is going to matter when the Ark has disappeared later because it, the Ark itself is just a conduit of the Father's power. It's just a, a placeholder, if you will. It's not actually the father's power. You know what I'm saying? Um, it's ultimately, it's just a box of wood and gold, but it's not truly like, you know, some sort of mystical power box. Like you see in like the justice league comics or something, you know what I mean? But it's, it was a representation of the place of the father's throne and his power, his authority, his name. And that's where it was, you know, emanating the goodness of God. And you had to, you know, be clean under certain directions in order to even get close to it and mess with it. So, 
But what's unique about it is it's still just a box overlaid with gold. It's not anything that in itself is going to be, um, it's, it's not anything that in itself is like some sort of talisman that actually just carries power forever. I mean, because again, it's just, it's just materials from the earth that the father chose to, you know, have the place of his presence dwell when he would drop down through the angel, uh, the angel of his presence. Right. So once it disappears, the father can still carry on and do business like normal. And this matters to us as believers post Yeshua. And so let's just keep reading some of these verses real quick. Um, we'll go through some of this. You guys will see what I'm saying here in just a minute. All right. So the next, next thing we're looking at is Daniel chapter five. And this is when Daniel's in captivity with the other uh, exiles from Judah. They're you know, in Babylon. Babylon's been taken over by a couple different people. So this is when um, Nebuchadnezzar's already been deposed. Someone else took over for a short time and they're having a big party. And they actually grab some of the stuff they stole from Jerusalem, as we just read it, when it was pillaged earlier. And they're actually going to start partying with this stuff. And, there, and so this is Daniel chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. It says, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. And when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So with these specific gold and silver vessels, they're praising their false gods. No mention of the ark in here. So let's, that's interesting, right? But we already read in 1 Kings 8 and 1 Kings 25 that there were all these other tools and utensils, the spoons, the snuffers, all these other things that were considered the gold and silver vessels that were part of not just the treasury, but also temple usage in all capacities. So this is going to matter, guys, because we're getting to the apocalypse of Baruch, right? Baruch is going to be the, the son of Neriah. He was a um, an actual, um, well, actually, let me read those first, okay? So he was an actual assistant to Jeremiah. Many people think that he was an, what they call an aristocrat, or he was actually a descendant of the tribe of Judah, um, whom one, I think it was his uncle, was under King Zedekiah. So he, but he was a disciple of Jeremiah and he was considered Jeremiah's scribe. Let's read about Baruch real quick so you can understand why we're about, what we're about to read in the Apocalypse of Baruch. This is in Jeremiah chapter 36, verses 1 through 8 and verse 32. As a brief summary, please go read the whole chapter later if you have time. But this just introduces the idea of, of who Baruch was, and it's going to line up who was ruling during the days of Baruch when this interaction is happening. So it says, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, that's, that's also Jeconiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, take a scroll and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning all the nations from the day I, spoke, I first spoke to you from the days of Josiah even to this day. Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way. And then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words the Lord which he had spoken. Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am restricted. I cannot go into the house of the Lord. So you go and read from the scroll which you have written at my dictation the words of the Lord to the people in the Lord's house on a fast day. So real quick, guys, the reason why... He's restricted because he's being persecuted by uh, Jehoiakim or Jokaniah, right? So he's um, 
I think at this moment he's actually in prison. And he says, and also you should read to them all the people of Judah who've come from their cities. I apologize. But the reason I mention that is because Jeremiah um, supposedly was from the, not from the tribe of Benjamin, that he was actually descendant of a Levite, but he was from Anathoth. I think that's how you say it, Anathoth or Anathoth, uh, in the land of Benjamin, but he was a descendant of Levites as much as I understand. And that therefore that's why he can go into the temple and he can, um, and he's also considered a prophet. So, and he's telling Baruch here to do, you know, to, to help dictate form. So there's a lot of people that actually believe that Baruch wrote, physically wrote the book of Jeremiah, as well as first and second Kings, which is pretty wild. Um, at, and first and second Chronicles. So Baruch was an important figure during this time. He says, and also read to them and all the people of Judah who come from their cities. Perhaps their supplication will come before the Lord and everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and the wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. Baruch, the son of Neriah, did according to all that Jeremiah, the prophet, commanded him, reading from the book of the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Verse 36, verse 32, later on in the chapter, it says, And then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the scribe. And he wrote on it at a dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the book, which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. So this first book, Jehoiakim received it, threw it away, burned it. And then they make another copy, basically, with a little bit more um, commentary. So let's look back at what Baruch says, because he has his own books that he's written, because he has visions from the Lord where angels come to talk to him at the agency of the Father and give him messages concerning the nation of Jerusalem, specifically concerning what we read earlier tonight in our very first chapter, in our very first slide. Okay, so specifically concerning the idea that um, during the, the first siege when King Zedekiah was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. So what we're about to read in the Apocalypse of Baruch is going to happen during that time period. Because remember, what happened during that time period, there was a siege around the city, and they broke into the city, but they did not destroy it all to the ground just yet. Okay, so there's some there's some di distinctions that we're lining up context with so that we can understand the full story because it happens um, in two different places, basically, two different time periods over 10 years. So um, let me check the chat real quick and see. See how everybody's doing. All right. So it looks like, yeah, Baruch, uh, Baruch chapter second, or the Apocalypse of Baruch 51 is a great chapter. We've, we've used that, uh, quoted from that in several different videos. It's a good one, um, especially in our angels' videos and explaining what we're promised at the resurrection. So Blue Doves is saying that number 1710 was saying that the rod and the manna was placed before the Ark of the Testimony and not in it. That may be a great point. Um, if that, I mean, we, I'm, I'm going to go look at it real quick because sometimes you have to look at the translation. So it says in number 1710, before the Ark of the Testimony, so take quite it, okay, before the Ark of the Testimony. In front, stay near the sacred chest as a warning. Okay. So, and then Septuagint's claiming the Lord said to Moses, Lay up the rod of the Aaron before the testimonies to be kept as a sign of the children disobedient, let them murmuring, not die. Okay. Um, 
because in Hebrews 9, 4, it says that the uh, the golden altar of incense, the golden covered ark, the covenant inside the ark with the golden jar of manna, um, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. So uh, it makes you wonder if there's, again, more information that we don't quite have as far as where this stuff went. Where did the staff go? Did they take it just in and out of the ark? Did the manna come in and out of the ark from time to time? Um, it's interesting because by the time we get to the days of Solomon, they don't even mention it anymore. So that's interesting. And the uh, if you look at the surrounding context of Hebrews chapter 9, it's not talking about the days of Solomon. It's talking about the the beginning of the ark. But, um, but thank you guys for dropping that in the chat. See, that's why I love the community. I, I love that you guys are still researching that as I'm reading. <laughs> that's <laughs> I put a bug in you and you're going off to research. That's great. That's how we do it. So um, so let's let's get back to this idea real quick, guys, because we're looking at here in the Apocalypse of Baruch. So we've, we've laid a foundation for the timing of the, the two different phases, if you will, of, Nebu of Babylon destroying not just the temple, but Jerusalem. So we're going to read about the temple getting destroyed here in a minute. But Jerusalem itself was broken into after it was being sieged. King Zedekiah is being taken. When this point happens, the Ark of the Covenant we don't have any mention of what happens to it in the canon, but we do right here in the Apocalypse of Baruch. Let's read it real quick. This is in chapter 1 and 2. They're real short. It says, It came to pass in the 25th year of Jeconiah. That's what we just read earlier from Jehoiakim. Um, the king of Judah, that the word of the Lord came to Baruch, the son of Neriah, and said to him, Have you seen all that this people are doing to me, that the evils which these two tribes which remained have done are greater than those of the ten tribes which were carried away captive? For the former tribes were forced by their kings to commit sin, but these two of themselves have been forcing and compelling their kings to commit sin. For this reason, behold, I bring evil upon this city and upon its inhabitants. Real quick, guys, just in case you're wondering what he's referring to, that's Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6 through 10, where he's talking about how um, Judah did not return to him in faithfulness, but returned to him with treachery. So you guys might remember my identity crisis um, averted video where I give the big the big timeline. And I break down the different invasion phases of the Assyrian kings with the northern houses. And then as we're reading about here with the Babylonian king, and they in invaded over three different waves, uh, first one taking out Zedekiah, and then over two different other times to fully exile all of the southern kingdom. So between the hundred plus years that the northern kingdom was exiled first, and then hundred plus years later, the southern kingdom this is where Jeremiah is writing the statement. This is where Jeremiah chapter three happens, where he's prof the Lord's prophesying through him to say that Jerusalem, excuse me, Judah, the southern kingdom, was more treacherous than the northern kingdom. Returned to him not with sincerity of heart, and this is what we see because they had a good king, a bad king, good king, and then finally he exiles them too. Right, So this is what's being mentioned here in the Pagasa Baruch as well. It says, For this reason, behold, I bring evil upon this city and upon its inhabitants, and it shall be removed from me, from before me for a time. And I will scatter this people among the Gentiles, that they may do good to the Gentiles. And my people shall be chastened, and the time shall come when they will seek for prosperity of their times. For I have said these things to you, that you may bid Jeremiah and all those that are like you to retire from the city. For your works are to this city as a firm pillar, and your prayers as a strong wall. He goes on in chapter three and four real quick. He says, and I said, O Lord, my Lord, have I come into this world for this purpose that I might see the evils of my mother? He's speaking metaphorically using the term mother about Jerusalem. 
And not so, my Lord, if I have found grace in your sight, first take my spirit that I may go to my father's and not behold the destruction of my mother. For two things vehemently constrain me, for I cannot resist you. <laughs> sorry to sorry to keep stopping, guys, but it just cracks me up. As I was studying this, I was like, boy, I bet, I bet the, uh, the tulip Calvinists would love this passage, right? He says, for I cannot resist you, and my soul, moreover, cannot behold the evils of my mother. But one thing I will say in your presence, O Lord, what therefore will there be after these things? For if you destroy your city and deliver up your land to those that hate us, how shall the name of Israel be again remembered? Or how shall one speak of your praises? Or to whom shall that which is in your law be explained? Or shall the world return to its nature of aforetime, and the age revert to primeval silence? And shall the multitude of souls be taken away, and the nature of man not again be named? And where is all that which you did say regarding us? And the Lord said unto me, This city shall be delivered up for a time, and the people shall be chastened during a time, and the world will not be given over to oblivion. And by the way, this is a, a, a translation from, uh, uh, from the Aramaic. And I have not had a chance to actually look at the original Aramaic scroll and test this, but I would guess that when he's talking about the world will not be given up to oblivion, he's talking about the land the, that's always being referenced in prophecy and scripture was this, this area was considered the promised land where the new Jerusalem is going to sit down this land of promise, uh, because he would say the, the earth, the land, and many translators might put the word world there. I hope that makes any sense, but that's just a guess. That's just a little bit of speculation after lots of study of these, these, um, writings from this time period. So, but here we go on to chapter four real quick. And it says, do you think that this city of which I, do you think that this is the city of which I said on the palm of my hands, I've engraven you? This building now built in your midst is not that which is revealed with me. That which prepared beforehand here from the time when I took counsel to make paradise and showed Adam before he sinned, when he transgressed in the commandment, it was removed from him as also paradise. And after these things, I showed it to my servant Abraham by night among the portions of the victims. And again, I also showed it to Moses on Mount Sinai when I showed to the likeness of the tabernacle and all the vessels. And now behold, it is preserved with me as paradise. So go therefore and do as I command you. Now I'm going to stop real quick, guys. If this is your, if you've come to Kingdom in Context in the last year and you've never seen me talk about this passage or explain this, go check out our Honor of Kings uh, season one, where we review, I think it's episode 14, we review this passage um, in the Apocalypse of Baruch. And we also talk about, um, it's chapters 18 and 19, we talk about the Apocalypse of Abraham. That explains and goes into great depth of how uh, Abraham was shown it among the portions of the victims at night. That's in Genesis 15 moment when he saw a vision. And Moses, as I've talked about in great detail, even in my very first videos on this on this channel, um, which is, uh, do you really know Jesus' message? The Gospel of the Kingdom videos that are in my beginner's playlist. I explain the ideas of Moses from Hebrews chapter 8. It's a verse we're going to read in a little bit of how he also on Mount Sinai got a glimpse, a vision of the heavenly tabernacle above. And this is what Yahweh through this angel is telling Baruch in this moment right now. And he's saying, you think this city is, is what's promised to you? You think this is the, the big deal? This ground-based daughter Jerusalem that's on the ground? No. The real thing, Mother Jerusalem, Galatians 4.26, the real deal is coming down from above. It's with him now. It's it's reserved with him as paradise. This was what Adam saw when he was in the garden. This was what was shown to Abraham and Moses. This is what's coming down in Revelation 21 as the Garden of Eden expanded and made bigger into the Garden of Jerusalem. This is the, the mother above that Paul mentions in Galatians 4.26. So, this is the actual Zion that we're, we get to see in Isaiah chapter 60 and so many other places. So 
this is what Baruch is having this moment right now where he's kind of freaking out because the armies are invading. They're besieged the city. And he's like, man, we're, we're, it's all over. It's all over. Who's going to spread the hope of your glory and your name? And who's going to teach people your word? And like, I love Baruch's heart. He's got an incredible heart, but the father had to remind him of what he was lacking, what he was forgetting about prophecy and about what he didn't understand about the word, which was, Hey man, you're just in the shadow. You're just in the copy right now. This whole thing that you've been doing on the ground, it's just a copy of what's going to be forever when I bring my house down, which is the real thing. So that's why this matters. But he goes on to say, and I answered and I said, so then I'm just destined to grieve for Zion for your enemies will come to this place and pollute your sanctuary and lead your inheritance into captivity and make themselves masters of those whom you have loved. And they will depart again to the place of their idols and will boast before them. And what will you do for your great name? In chapter five, he goes on and says, the Lord said to me, my name and my glory are unto all eternity. I love, I love, I love the Lord's response to him. It's kind of like, it's, it's almost like you can just hear the, the confidence and the dismissal of Baruch's, you know, um, uh, whining and immature, um, questioning of like, what, what in the world? Like, it's almost like Baruch is trying to trying to emotionally motivate Yahweh to change courses or to do something miraculous in this moment by saying, by trying to, you know, throw some guilt at him, like well, what's going to happen with all this stuff that's supposed to be good and righteous. What are you going to do for us? And what about your great name? And he's actually, he's pulling out the Trump card of calling on his authority, right? And Baruch is saying, what about your authority? Are you going to let that be besmirched? Like what, you know, and he's trying to, he's trying to get the Lord to, to do something here, but the Lord just like, nah, I, I got plans, man. You're, you you need to catch up to me, and uh, I don't need to be, I don't need to be acquiescing to you. You need to catch up to my plans. So the Lord said said to me, my name and my glory are unto all eternity, and my judgment shall maintain its right in its own time. You shall see with your eyes that the enemy will not overthrow Zion, nor shall they burn Jerusalem, but be ministers of the judge for the time. Okay, so this is what he's saying for the time. So what do we read back in First Corinthians, or First Kings, chapter twenty-five? The initial siege where King Zedekiah was was kidnapped or was taken into exile. First, they broke into the city, okay, so that they didn't just destroy everything immediately. That came later. It says, but do you go and do whatever I've said to you? And I went and I took Jeremiah and Adu and Sariah and Jabesh and Gedaliah, Gedaliah and all the honorable men of the people, and I led them to the valley of Kidron, and I narrated to them all that had been said to me. And they lifted up their voice and they all wept. And we sat there and fasted until the evening. And it came to pass on the morrow that, lo, the army of the Chaldees surrounded the city. And at the time of the evening, I, Baruch, left the people. I went forth and stood by the oak, and I was grieving over Zion and lamenting over the captivity which had come up on the people. And, lo, suddenly a strong spirit raised me up and bore me aloft over the walls of Jerusalem. And I beheld, and, lo, four angels standing at the four corners of the city, each of them holding a torch of fire in his hands. And another angel began to descend from heaven and said unto them, Hold your lamps and do not light them till I tell you. For I am first sent to speak a word to the earth and to place it in what the Lord, the Most High, has commanded me. Let me get some water real quick, guys. So he says, And I saw him descend into the Holy of Holies and take from there the veil, the holy ark, the mercy seat, the two tables, the holy raiment of the priests, the altar of incense, the 48 precious stones, wherewith the priest was adorned and all the holy vessels of the tabernacle. And he spoke to the earth with a loud voice, earth, 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 hear the word of the mighty God and receive what I commit to you. 
and guard them until the last times, so that when you're ordered, you may restore them, so that strangers may not get possession of them. For the time comes when Jerusalem also will be delivered for a time, until it is said that it is again restored forever. And the Lord and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. So let's read real quick in chapter 7 and 9. And it says, After these things I heard that angels say unto those angels who held the lamps, Destroy therefore and overthrow its walls to its foundations, lest the enemy should boast and say, We have not, we have overthrown the wall of Zion, we have burnt the place of the mighty God, and they have seized the place where I've been standing before. Now the angels did as he commanded them, and when they broke and up the corners of the walls, a voice from the interior of the temple, after the wall had fallen, saying, Enter, you enemies, and come, you adversaries, for he who kept the house has forsaken it. So this is where I'm always talking about context, guys. If you read the very first, if you read like just only the very first passage here in verse 7, where he says, take your lamps and overthrow the walls of Zion, you're like, oh, then that's when it happened. No, if you read on a few sentences later, it says they just destroyed the corners and then told the enemy, come on in. And they're doing this so that the Babylonian army and Nebuchadnezzar cannot boast and say they overcame Jerusalem. They're doing this so that they're, they're going to come in and he's going to destroy the temple and everything. Um, they're, they're coming into the interior of the temple, but they're coming in. This is, this is done intentionally by the angels. It's not done by the invading army. So that's something interesting. And they're not breaking down the entirety of the wall at this point, just the corners. That's all you need for the army to get in. So it's interesting. It says, And I, Baruch, departed, and it came to pass after these things that the army of the Chaldees entered, seized the house and all that was around it, and they led people away captive and slew some of them. They bound Zedekiah the king and sent him to the king of Babylon. And I, Baruch, came, and Jeremiah, whose heart was found pure from sins, who had not been captured in the seizure of the city, we rent our garments, we wept and mourned, and fasted seven days. All right. So how did Baruch and Jeremiah not get caught up in this invasion and get taken away? That's the interesting part, right? Or at least hopefully that's what you're asking. Because we just read about what the angels did. The angels supposedly are the ones who took the went to the Holy Holies, they took from there the veil, the holy ark, the mercy seat, two tables, the holy remnants of the pray, the holy remnant of the priests, the altar of incense, and the forty-eight precious stones. So they took these concepts and they went and they said, "Earth, open your mouth." And that we have this unique term that the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. So we know that the earth doesn't have a literal mouth. We know that uh, the earth doesn't literally swallow things and ingest it. These are this is what we would call metaphor, a simile. This is a application of a term of what's an anthropomorphic application of something that's not alive being given attrib attributions of something that's alive right so this is just a figure of speech okay and we're going to explore that figure of speech here in just a minute so we can ascertain the location of the the ark of the covenant um let me just check the chat real quick and see how everyone's doing so hopefully hopefully i'm making this as as clear as possible tonight um that's my goal is to try to try to make this as clear as possible. So let me see if there's any questions and people have in the chat. If you do have a question, I'm going to try to get to them here in just a minute when I finish this, the verses and we'll do the, the actual Q&A. Just make sure you put it on all caps so that the moderators can see it and that they can remember to, to help me address it. All right. So, so the reason why I'm taking a little bit of time with this, folks, is because the details matter when it comes to this. This is why... In my opinion, this is why there's still 
people running around saying, you know, we need to go find the Ark of the Covenant. Um, because they, they overlook the details and they get excited about the idea or they watch movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark and they think that it's still something that's lost. Guys, it's not lost. It's been intentionally hidden. And we're going to explain that here in a minute. But it's not just lost as if it can be found. The whole point of Raiders of the Lost Ark, besides the, the mockery of God, because it's written by Hollywood producers that are Satanists, but besides that, they're showing you and presenting to you a concept that subconsciously gets you thinking something's possible. Do you see how that works? The whole point of that movie, you walk away thinking, wow, what, where is the ark? Is it, could I find it? Could someone actually find it? Archaeologist who's financed well enough and maybe follows the right clues. And like, could they actually go find it? Like that's, that's wild. What's going on with the ark? And then how does that play into other political narratives that we see today? We see, modern Judaism talking about, oh, well, we got the ark. We just, we just, you know, we're bringing it back when the Messiah returns. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> then you have the Ethiopians uh, where they have a tradition that they claim they have the ark and they, they have a, a church that has a super deep uh, basement and they have a dude that dedicates his whole life to go down there and guard something. So they claim that they got the ark. But is this the original ark? Were there more than one ark? What did we just read? We just read that these angels during the first siege of Jerusalem, when Zedekiah was taken in exile by Nebuchadnezzar, that the angels come and took the ark of the covenant and earth opened its mouth and swallowed it. We're going to get into that in a minute. But the point is that they took it and removed it from the Holy of Holies. So when Jesus is walking around and he's going to the temple, and the high priests are doing their day of uh, atonement thing. Is that the original ark? What's the point? It's there. Did they find it again? Was there even an ark in the temple when Jesus was on the earth? Because that's happening about 500 years after the stuff we're reading here. So the reason why I'm asking all this, guys, is because I need you to get your I want you to be thinking and questioning along these ideas that I am so that you understand where we're going with this here in just a minute. But what we read in these first nine chapters of Baruch is super important for us to understand that angels are physically involved, just like we read in first Kings chapter eight. Angels are physically involved, just like we read at the angel that that went before Exodus 23 went before the encampment of Israel. And that was the person that was the entity, the agent of the father in Exodus 33 that dropped down in the Holy in the tent of meeting so that Moses could speak with uh, God face to face. That was all this interaction is happening. There's lots of angels being involved to take care of the father's business on the earth. And this is where these details are super important as we run through this. So let's go and finish up real quick. It says, um, uh, we already read about Baruch, but let's go to 2 Maccabees, okay? Chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. One finds in the records that Jeremiah the prophet, he ordered those who were being deported to take some of the fire, as he had been told, that the prophet, after giving them the law, instructed those who were being deported. Why are they being deported? Because they're being invaded. What did we just read about the days of Jeremiah and Baruch? Okay, they were being invaded. Why did we just read in both in Baruch and 1 Kings that Babylon is invading and they're taking people captive, but Baruch and Jeremiah don't go. 
they stay. They're still in Jerusalem and they're still doing stuff for the Lord. There's a let's, let's read further. It says in that the prophet, after giving the law, instructed those who were being deported not to forget the commandments of the Lord, nor to be led astray in their thoughts upon seeing the gold and silver statues in their adornment. And with other similar words, he extorted them that the law should not depart from their hearts. Do you think this exhortation, that this encouragement to remember the law and not be, you know, taken, not to be impressed by the idols of Babylon, do you think that this was the information that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel heard? As they were boys being exiled. These guys are all in the same group. It's, it's all the same generation. Do you think when Jeremiah was given this exhortation, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel are in the crowd? It's very possible. So it was also in the writing that the prophet, having received an oracle, ordered that the tent and the ark should follow with him, and that he went out to the mountain where Moses had gone up, and he had seen the inheritance of God, and that Jeremiah came and found a cave. And he brought there the tent and the ark and the altar of incense, and he sealed up the entrance. Some of those who followed him came up to the mark the way, but could not find it. And when Jeremiah learned of it, he rebuked them and declared, The, the place shall be unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows his mercy. And then the Lord will disclose these things, and the glory of the Lord and the cloud will appear, as they were shown in the case of Moses, and as Solomon asked that the place should be specially consecrated. So just as the, this is what I was talking about in 1 Kings chapter 8, the glory of the Lord filled the house and that everyone had to leave because it was too strong. That's an angel, guys. It's not just a bright cloud. <laughs> it's an angel of God who exudes the, the presence of God. That's why they're called the angels of the presence. This is the one that was specifically sent to follow them from Exodus 23, to be with them. So this is what Jeremiah is prophesying concerning the ark. That he took it. Well, what did the Apocalypse of Baruch say? That the angels took it through a hologram. What what does it say here? That Jeremiah and those who followed him, those are the angels. So just like in the book of Tobit, like we re reviewed on Honor of Kings on, in season two last year, just like in the book of Tobit, that uh, you know uh, someone of Israel can literally go on a journey with an angel and not realize it's an angel, or maybe he does realize it's an angel. It still doesn't matter. The angels still interact with them like normal and they can physically carry stuff and do stuff. And right. How appropriate that angels need to take these holy vessels, that the angels would be able to carry the ark behind Jeremiah and go to Mount Sinai. That's the Moses. That's the mountain that Moses had went up. So we get this unique disclosure in second Maccabees which used to be in our Bibles. Would, would we be having this conversation if that was still in our Bibles? Would they even be able to make movies like Raiders of the Last Ark, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Or would have preachers for a hundred years already before that movie was even made, would have preachers been able to explain to people where the Ark was and what was going on? So we specifically have, this is why, by the way, Jeremiah is not in the city when the Babylonians are invading. As we read back in the Apocalypse of Baruch, where it says that Jeremiah was, um, let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, yeah, Jeremiah, whose heart was found pure from sins, who had not been captured in the seizure of the city. Well, it's, I'm putting forward the theory, it's because he wasn't even there. It's because he was on this journey during that time with these angels who took all these holy vessels, the ark, all these things, and they went to Mount Sinai and they buried him in a cave somewhere.
And no one knows where this is except Jeremiah. And of course he's dead. So, so no one, no one knows where this place is. So guys, let's keep reading real quick. We're almost done. It was clear. This is verse nine through 15 in second Maccabees two. It was also made clear that being possessed of wisdom, Solomon offered sacrifice for the dedication and the completion of the temple. Just as Moses prayed to the Lord and fire came down from heaven and devoured the sacrifices. So also Solomon prayed and fire came down and consumed the whole burnt offerings. And Moses said they were consumed because the sin offering had not been meeting, eaten. Likewise, Solomon also kept the eight days. The same things are reported in the records and the memoirs of Nehemiah, and also that he founded a library and collected the books about the kings and the prophets and the writings of David and the letters of kings about votive offerings. Boy, I would love to see that library. In the same way, Judas, that's Judas Maccabeus, um, he also collected all the books that had been lost on account of the war and which had come upon us, and they are in our possession. So if you have need of them, send people to get them for you. <laughs> so the, the person that's penning 2 Maccabees, which people think is one of the sons of Maccabee, um, that they literally have all these books that's being mentioned about that Nehemiah had collected. That where, Again, we have this concept like we talked about a few weeks ago when we looked at the, uh, the Bible that had been given to Enoch and Jacob, how information has been faithfully passed on this whole time. And so we have... This guy talking about the writings of the kings, um, the writings of David, uh, books about kings and the prophets. They're all been in a collection, and the, this guy is literally standing here. And, oh, by the way, we, we know that the ark is buried in a hole somewhere. Jeremiah did it. We have this information, a whole bunch of information, because it matters because of the, the dedication of the temple with Solomon. And this was this is all this is a huge part of their culture, their history, their faith, their their walk with God, and how they keep the law. So he's in you know a couple hundred years before Yeshua, they're informing the faithful remnant that's in Samaria and in Judah at this time. They're informing all of them that you know we we know where all this stuff went and what happened to all of it. Like we're aware of what's of our history. And there, there's a reason for this, guys, because during this time period in Samaria, um, the Samaritans wanted to worship God. And they had they um, asked the Seleucid king that was they were interacting with, um, they, they asked him to build a temple to Yahweh in Samaria. And they did. And it was up for some time, and then later it was destroyed. So this is why in John chapter 4, when the Samaritan woman comes to Jesus, and she's talking about the... Um, where will we worship in the future? Because the Samaritans had a two, 300 year history already of, they literally build their own temple away from Jerusalem in the region of Samaria, which would have been like, you know, the Northern kingdom area. Okay. Just below um, Nazareth and the land of Naphtali and Asher and, and uh, that whole region up there. So like there was, there's a lot of history that we're not told in the scriptures that used to be in the scriptures that have been taken out. And I just, you know, I try to get to it as fast as I can, but I, I try to weave it into some of these things periodically to give you better context. So there is this, this point here where the Maccabees during their day, they knew exactly what happened to the Ark and where it was and why it's not going to come back until, just like Jeremiah says, until, until just like, excuse me, just like Baruch says, until the gathering of his people again. So you have, well, I guess Jeremiah is, Baruch when it comes to these letters because they're written by Baruch. So, but you've got this idea here that that um, there the place shall be unknown until God gathers His people together again and shows His mercy. Guys, if you haven't seen um, 
episode one of our first Exodus Milk and Meat live stream that we did about six weeks ago. Please go check that out in the playlist because we go over that gathering in great detail. It's the resurrection. It's the day of the Lord when he actually comes down, when the glory of the Lord will appear, as it says at the bottom here in verse 8. And his angels come with him, his angels of power and his angels of presence. And literally Yeshua is on the earth, more powerful and more more authority than any angel around him. So it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty amazing, right? And why would it why would this box, right, that was overlaid with gold, why would it matter that he's gonna get it and make it appear again when he returns? Jeremiah chapter 3, 15 through 18. And I will give you pastors according to your to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And it shall come to pass when you be multiplied and increased in the land. In those days, says the Lord, they shall say no more. The ark of the covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come to mind. Neither shall they remember it. Neither shall they visit it. Neither shall that be done anymore. At that time, they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. That's the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. The paradise you read about at the beginning of the Apocalypse of the Baruch. And all the nations shall be gathered together unto it. That's the gathering that we were just re we're talking about. Not only the resurrection, but all the... this We covered that in uh, episode three of our Milk and Meat live stream called Survivors of the Nations, I believe. Um, and that's where we, you know, it's part of our second Exodus series that we've talked about. Um, so you're welcome to go check that out. We give all the verses that talk about both the resurrection is considered a gathering. And then after the New Jerusalem sets down, all the nations are gathered to him as well. And it says, neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. And in those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel. Hallelujah. And they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I've given for an inheritance unto your fathers. And that is the kingdom come, the New Jerusalem. That's the inheritance we're given. Isaiah 54, 17. All right. Revelation 11, 9, the Ark of the Covenant. There is an Ark of the Covenant, a real one in heaven. So it's here, Revelation eleven nineteen, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the Ark of his Testament. And there were lightings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. And this is the moment of the seventh trumpet that's happening. And he is actually about, Yeshua is about to come back with the angels and do vengeance upon the earth. The wrath of the Lamb is literally starting where he's coming down out of heaven. The Ark of the Testament is seen by John in this vision in heaven when this moment happens. So the Ark of the Testament is that the one that Moses used all the way up to the days of Solomon and we see being buried by Jeremiah, that's in a hole in the ground. We don't know where that is, but it's just a replica of what was already in heaven. That's why it can be in a hole in the ground. It doesn't really matter. The whole thing, the whole, all that we're doing down here is Leviticus 18.5. We're practicing. We're practicing the ways of the Father, his behaviors. Part of his behaviors is he has a temple, the one that's being seen in Revelation here, and he has an ark, and he has a priesthood, and they do sacrifices. You see what I'm saying? Everything that we were given as mankind through the descendants of Jacob, as the nation of Israel, through the authority of Moses, through the agency of the Levites, and specifically the, the Aaronites in the book of Exodus, was a copy. It's a copy. It's a practicing of our eternity. Hebrews 8, 1 through 5. Now of these things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. So this is what I mean, right? High priest does a law. He's set before the Father because the Father is a temple in heaven. A high priest ministers in a temple. That's why you have all these terms being talked about happening in heaven. A minister of a sanctuary and of a true tabernacle 
which the Lord pitched and not man, right? Man pitched the one on the ground. He pitched the one in heaven. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it's of necessity that this man have someone also to offer. <laughs> it's telling you right here that Yeshua is doing the law in heaven, literally doing the laws of like Leviticus 1 through 7 in the, in the tabernacle in heaven before the Father. Wherefore, it's a necessity that this man have someone also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. That's the Levites. Yeshua was not considered of the Levites. He's considered of the tribe of Judah. So that's why he is put into a different priesthood called the Melchizedek priesthood and ministers in the true tabernacle in the heaven above because as uh, Malachi chapter 2, verse 4 through 9 and Jeremiah 33 and... Testament of Levi chapter three and book of Jubilees chapter um, 33 <laughs> there, the Levites through the, the descendants of Levi, the son of Jacob, they were given the priesthood on the earth. That's why if Yeshua was on the earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all because there's already people that do that with the copy on the ground. So there's a priesthood in heaven. Yeshua was a part of that ministering at, when a true tabernacle in heaven there's a copy of that tabernacle on the earth, and it has a copy of the priesthood through the Levites ministering in that copy of a tabernacle. You guys understand? What, what did Jesus tell us to pray? That your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a direct part of that, okay? So let's look at Mount Sinai. And I'm just checking out the chat real quick before we go over some of these pictures about about where the ark is actually located. Um, <laughs> okay, so yes, Greg Swain will be granted to be kings and priests. Um, will be granted to be kings and priests in his kingdom. That's right. Exodus 19, 5, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 through 6. It's a part of our promise of the covenant is that we have the law written in our hearts. We get to enter into this priesthood because we do his behavior perfectly. And um, let me see here. Yes. Um, Benjamin DOC is talking about the actual is greater than the shadow. Amen. That's right. Hebrews chapter eight is trying to tell you there's a true tabernacle above. It's greater than the shadow that was on the earth. That's why the shadow on the earth can go away and God still does his thing. doesn't have a problem. This is why we have Yeshua being made a high priest to minister in the one above and not on the one on the ground. Because that's what matters for us. That's why he became our high priest. That's what was prophesied of him. So that he can go and minister into the tabernacle that's permanent and forever. That the father literally is in proximity to. And he doesn't have to have an angel and agency come down to the earth. Right? It's literally minister. You guys, you know, they did a, a um, when they would do a, an actual offering on the ground. And they would do a burnt offering. And well, there that was the, the meal being prepared for Yahweh. So in a true tabernacle above, if Yeshua is preparing a burnt offering, he's preparing it for his dad. He's preparing a meal for his dad. <laughs> it's amazing, guys. It's amazing. This is why all this can be so confusing if you don't understand the Old Testament and the law. Um, all right, so let me see if there's any other questions or anything. Um, and Benjamin DOC is asking, is that why Saudi Arabia has the mountain closed off? Yes, we're going to get into that in just a minute. Um, the mountains are closed off. Someone else said that there are more. I think I read they said there's more than one heaven. Um, 
And yes, that is correct. There's multiple layers of the heaven. We talk about that in a couple different videos. It's actually the layers of the ferment. I check out my creations playlist on my channel. I go over uh, the creation, different things like that. And in fact, Ken Heidebrecht actually has a really good video as well called The Firmament. If you want to check that out on his, uh, hanging on his words on his channel, um, that's a really good one. And um, let me see here. All right. Yeah. Andy Pandy makes a good comment. He's saying the day of the Lord be great for some and terrible for others. That's right. Zephaniah 1 calls it a terrible day. Nahum chapter 1 verse 7, I believe, calls it a terrible day. And it's only terrible for the wicked. It's only terrible for the kings of the earth, for the beast, uh, the false prophet, for Satan, for those who followed after their ways and their behaviors. And they rejected the king. They rejected Messiah. But for those who didn't reject the king, for those who don't reject Messiah, those who believe in him in faith, it's a beautiful, beautiful time. It's a beautiful day. Um, I think I'm getting some questions real quick, but before we jump into the actual questions, let me finish with some of these. Uh, let me finish with some of these pictures real quick because we're going to look at where Sinai is. This is actually Mount Sinai. Some of you have seen this before. We reviewed this in our kingdom portions last year. This is the. This is not a shadow on this mountain, guys. This is actually the rocks have been changed in their color. They've been burnt. So what do we read next is the glory of the Lord came down like a smoking cloud of fire on top of the mountain. You have literally archaeological evidence staring you in the face that the story of the Exodus in Mount Sinai happened, according to how it's claimed anyway. Let's keep going because we're going to see more than just this. This is a, a little bit, you know, a little bit broader view of the mountain. You can see there's a, a definitive color change. Um, this is the split rock, or at least what people consider to be the split rock and that the water came out of and this would be the area that the water not only would they travel but the flat some of the flat lands no 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 i'm sorry this is actually leading up to the mountain um but this is just to show you the mountain range in itself it, when they say mount sinai it's not just one hill it's not just one one actual rock formation there's a whole group there's a whole concept area there's a whole region if you will of things happening so that's going to be important in just a minute so this is where it's um, actually being guarded as Benjamin DOC is saying that it's actually the Saudi Arabian government has put fencing up where they can to keep people away. Because as you can see in front of this lady, there's literally carvings of Egyptian bulls, Egyptian style carvings. Where, where did the Hebrews come from? Where they have been living for a couple hundred years. Yeah. In Egypt and Goshen, they were interacting with the Egyptians. Uh, what did they want to make? As soon as they got out of Egypt, they wanted to make a golden calf. So this is what many people believe is the actual rock formation, the rock mound where they were put up the golden calf and were worshiping it. Um, let's keep going real quick. This is at the foot of the mountain here. And this is what people think is a dried out. You see the depressed area where the fence goes down into it. They think that's where the rock from the water came out and filled up as a reservoir for the, you know, two plus million people to drink out of. And you see the fencing that they put all up around this. So you can't get into it. And that little uh, monitoring station, it's the Saudi Arabian government out in the middle of nowhere in a wilderness. There's no towns around. And they decided to put up fencing around a, a, a bunch of rocks and mountains. Because <laughs> it's pretty obvious they know what they got. And this is the, the actual guard gate. And they tell you it's an archaeological area. Can't pass into here. <laughs> Only by royal decree of the Saudi, Saudi kings. So 
it's crazy, right? We have uh, the reason why I'm I'm putting this on screen. This is an actual archaeologist, uh, PhD. Wrote a book called Exodus from Egypt about 10, 12 years ago, and he actually comes to the decision that I have been researching as well, and that's why I thought it'd be interesting to put it up here because he says that they, that what we've something something that we've actually talked about on Kingdom and Context on Kingdom portions uh, a couple different times is that Mount Horeb is an alternative name in scripture we see used many times for Mount Sinai. It's also called the mountain of God. And in certain places, it's even called Mount Paran. And this is where the Mount Paran thing gets a little interesting because they, they think about um, the wilderness of Paran, which is, you know, not, it's, it's close to the Mount Sinai wilderness area, but it's not really the same place. Uh, it's just kind of close by. And so they think, well, oh man, it must be a totally different mountain, but, there were many mountains called Paran that can be named in a different mountain range. Does that make sense? So the wilderness of Paran doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily the home to the mountain of Paran. Does that make any sense? So if I live here in the Rocky mountains, so I can understand how each mountain can have its own designated name, but it's still a part of the Rocky mountains. You see what I mean? So amongst the region and the wilderness of Sinai, there's multiple mountains within Sinai. And the mountain of God, is it also called Mount Horeb? It's also generically referred to as Mount Sinai, but we also see in a couple places it's referred to as Mount Paran. And you're, and you're like, well, Sean, what does that matter? Well, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1 through 9. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Shiginoth. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make known, in wrath remember mercy. God came from Timon, the Holy One, from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise, and his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence, and the burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and everlasting mountains were scattered. Is he speaking about many of you guys have been with us for a couple of years now? You've seen all of our videos. Some of you have seen 60% of our videos. Do you think that Habakkuk right here is prophesying about the days of Moses? Is he talking about the events of past history? Or is he talking about and using all the same qualifiers of the day of the Lord, which is the future time when the wrath of God comes? What does it say? We're in wrath. That's the wrath of the Lamb. Remember mercy. What do we read from? Second uh, Maccabees, when the ark would be revealed, when God appears and God shows up in mercy. Because what have we talked about, about the survivors of the nations of the whole world, that he comes to save them. He has to take the wicked out as a consequence because they're the ones killing everything. But he comes in mercy to save people. So this is where this is. And he comes from Taman, uh, the Holy One, also from Mount Paran. So this is where you get a unique unique concept of why would he even be coming from Mount Paran? <laughs> so let's keep reading real quick. Before him with the pestilence, we read about that in Second uh, Ezra 13 and um, Zechariah 14. And burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations. That only happens on the day of the Lord. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. That only happens on the day of the Lord, guys. Um, this is Revelation 16, 18. This is, uh, this is, uh, Nahum chapter 1, verse 4 and 7. Uh, this is a whole bunch of different, Isaiah 33. Uh, this is a whole bunch of different places. The, the mountains are shaking to the valleys. It's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 2 through 5. It's what John the Baptist is repeating in Matthew chapter 3. And uh, it's the, the 
dreadful and amazing day of the Lord. And it says, the perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction, and the curtains of the lands of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea? That you did ride upon your horses and your chariots of salvation? And that's because Isaiah 27, he splits the, the Sea of Egypt, the sea which is close to the Mount Sinai and that whole area. There's two, the Arabah and Aquabah coming from the sea. Um, it says supposedly that the tongue of the Sea of Egypt is broken into seven, uh, seven streams, if you will, so that people can cross over easily. Um, he says, your bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribes, even your word, Selah, you did cleave the earth with rivers. Um, so this is, it goes on to more again, please read all of Habakkuk chapter three. It goes into more greater detail, but this is a, a prophecy about the returning of the Messiah, the second coming, the day of the Lord. And this is when he comes in wrath, but also in mercy for the people that need him. And this is when he's coming from certain places, but it says in this moment, he actually comes from Mount Paran, which I think is fascinating. <laughs> Why would he want to do that? Let's keep going. The mountains saw you. They trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. They deep uttered his voice and lifted his hands up on high. The sun and mood stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows, they went. And at the shining of your glittering spear, you did march through the land in indignation. And you did thresh the heathen in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, even for salvation with your anointed. You wounded the head of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. Selah, you did strike through with, your, with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as devour the poor secretly. You did walk through the sea with your horses and heap it through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my belly trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his many troops." So Habakkuk is praying for the, that he's a part of the resurrection, that he's a part of the rest that we receive. Um, he's that definitely he won't be alive when this happens. But this is what we're talking about in Second Matthew chapter two, verse one through eight. Jeremiah learned of it. He rebuked them. He learned of the people trying to figure out the location of the ark. And why is he going to rebuke them? Because he says this place will be unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows his mercy. And the Lord will disclose these things and the glory of the Lord and the cloud, the cloud will appear as they were shown in the case of Moses, and as Solomon asked that the place should be specially consecrated. So he's giving references to significant events where angels showed up and the glory of the Lord happened, all in reference to the ark, as he's saying this ark won't be revealed until literally God comes and gathers his people. And he does that through the agency of his son, the Messiah, with tons of angels. So I, uh, I hope to make this as clear as possible tonight that um, as fun as it sounds to go try to convince the Saudi Arabian government to let me dig around the mountains of Sinai and put on a nice fedora and get a whip as fun as that all sounds. Um, unfortunately, I take the words of Jeremiah and the writings of the scriptures extremely uh, serious. And I think, I think it would be futile to try to actually find the Ark of the Covenant because it's already been hidden away by the father through his agents. And they did that saying that no one's ever going to find it again until he returns. And that's good enough for me because why, why would he need to bring it back out when he returns? Um, well, Ezekiel chapter 43 talks about the throne of the Lord and the, the temple of the Lord itself. And people were saying, well, we don't, we don't need to, um, 
as we read earlier in Jeremiah chapter three, it says people are not going to look for it because the Jerusalem will be the throne of the Lord. The new Jerusalem that comes down will be the place where the throne of the Lord is. And that's what we read in Revelation 21 verse 22. God, the almighty and the lamb are there. They are the seat of power. They are the throne of the God. Now, as far as the actual box laden with gold, is it possible that Yeshua will get it? Which is why he comes from Paran, from that direction and that specific prophecy. He comes from other places too. I could line up all the prophecies and show you uh, all the different places that he goes <laughs> during the day of the Lord, which is pretty interesting. And of course, and I say he, but if, if his angels are doing it in, on his behalf, it's like he's doing it too. It's the agency concept. But they're definitely going all throughout these places that are significant when he returns to take care of loose ends. And this is just one of the loose ends. Is that the Ark of the Covenant, the, what my understanding was, it would be the place where he sits. So the only reason you'd go and get it again is if, um, and people don't ask why, you know, where is it, where'd it go, is because it's you don't have to anymore. It's been found and he grabbed it, but it, you know, to sit on. <laughs> As king of the earth, as a person that we get to walk up to and see him sitting on the throne of power uh, in the stead of his father. So that, I mean, to me, it's like, makes perfect sense. Yeah, so we have a couple of people in the chat. Greg Swam says, God will recover all this property. That includes Solomon's gold from the temple and the Ark of the Covenant testimony. Yeah, that's right. Enoch chapter 54 and Isaiah chapter 60 is very interesting because it talks about how all the gold and silver and precious metals that the earth are brought before the Lord when the New Jerusalem returns, brought before Yeshua. And um, it's very interesting. Uh, he's definitely going to round up the things that the watchers have used and Satan has used to manipulate mankind and cause mankind to sin. Um, and yeah, it's essentially God's property he has to reclaim. So, um, Let me see here. Let's see if all right, guys. I'm gonna check out some of the admins have sent me some questions. And let me see if I can find that real quick. All right. Here's one question saying: if God has a temple up in heaven, um what are rockets doing? Do they enter into outer darkness? If God has a temple in heaven, what are rockets doing? Do they enter into outer darkness? No, rockets are not even going past the firmament because they're not even they're not even getting that far. This is why all the rocket launches we've seen, they actually take a uh, um, parabolic fashion. Uh, they don't actually go straight up. We're told that they're doing that in order to escape velocity, gravity, uh, excuse me, to get um, uh, to reach velocity, they need to escape gravity. But it is in defiance of geometry, which is that the shortest point the shortest path between two points is a straight line, but they claim because you're on a ball that you've got to fly at an arc and all the rockets seem to go in a strange parabolic arc away from their la their launch point. Um, and if we believe the scriptures and we believe the description of the firmament, there is no outer darkness. There is no inner space. There's, there's water above us. As Psalm 148 explains the same water that flooded in Genesis 7, 11, there's still water above us, above the layer of firmament above our head before you get to the other layer of firmament. We also see this in the Testament of Levi, chapter 3. I believe it's verses 2 through 4. And you've got the, the rockets, they're um, they're not going into outer darkness. That's a it's just a it's just a show they put on for people to sell a lie. All right, let me see if there's a another quick question. All right, it looks like 
uh, Liam Yahweh Akkad says, why has the tablets of stone placed inside the Ark of the Covenant and the book of the law placed outside the Ark of the Covenant? Is a Okay, I can't see the question. I apologize. I think I can see it. Let me see if I can find it in the chat. I can't see the last part of the question. But if it's the age-old question that we see from other ministries that talk about the book, the difference between the book of the law and the book of the covenant, there is none, guys. Uh, we we may have to do a, a meal can meet on that in the future, but I can share all the verses where there's no distinction. It's the same thing. Um, surely they had a copy. Uh, we know they had copies of the law that they would use to teach the people that the Levites would use to preach with. We see that in Nehemiah chapter 8 and uh, Malachi chapter 2, 4 through 9, where that it was the job of the Levites to actually teach the people the law. So if you've got the law written on these tablets inside the ark that people can't go see, well, then naturally, if you want to teach them that information, you need to copy it onto some other something, and that way you can um, teach it to the people. But is there a, the only thing that's against you in the law is the laws that you break. So this is kind of a, a bigger conversation as far as the context of what the law actually is. It's for your benefit. It's for your good. It's Romans 7.12. It's holy. It's good. It's perfect. But at the same time, if you transgress it, then it becomes an issue for you, right? Because now you're you're subject to divine wrath. So this idea is that the, the law itself, when done, is accounted as righteousness to you. This is what we see in John chapter 1, verse, uh, I think it's 4, with, with um, John the Baptist's parents. Also, Paul tries to explain this to us in Romans chapter 10, verse uh, 3 and 4, that there is a law that comes from the right, there is a righteousness that comes from the law, that Moses was had received from the father because it's the father's behavior. The word righteousness just means the right behavior that you're just doing the right things. So this is why in Deuteronomy six twenty five, Yahweh tells the people, if you do these things, I've given you these statutes, ordinances, judgments, it will be righteousness for you. Meaning your behavior will be in line with mine. If you do this stuff, I'm telling you to do. Um, so therefore it's good for you. Now, if you don't do this stuff, there are some penalties for some of them. So therefore, then it becomes a, a witness against you. Does that make any sense? So that that whole concept that um, is truly about the application of the judgment of the law by the priests who are that can serve the judges in regards to the people. So it's that's really the the short of that. All right, let me see if there's another question real quick. Um, Looks like Richard Merritt is asking for eternal life. Do we go to heaven or do we just go to the new Jerusalem or both? All right. We have, um, we've done quite a few videos on, well, we, you know what? We don't have like, I'm trying to think of a specific video other than the first resurrection series that I have in my playlists. Um, some of our first videos we did a couple years ago, please go check those out after this broadcast. Um, but if you are interested I mean, just the short of it, when we die, we go to Sheol and then we await the resurrection. And if you're, you know, if you've rejected God during your life and you're found that you're not going to make the resurrection, well, then you're going to go to the unpleasant side of Sheol where there is uh, emotional pain and your soul awaits to be resurrected at the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial reign where you stand before Yeshua and you're judged and thrown into the lake of fire and extinguished forever from existence. So that's where we go when we die is we go to Sheol. This is Psalm 139, verse 7 and 8, and a whole bunch of other places, by the way. And then we're only getting out with everyone else from Adam all the way up until the day of the Lord when Yeshua returns. And this is about the first resurrection that happens on the day of the Lord, the last trumpet, First Thessalonians 4, 
13 through 18, um, Isaiah 26, 19 through 21, Isaiah 27, verse 12, uh, a whole bunch of other places, Matthew 24, 29 through 31. It's the day of the Lord when he returns, he's resurrecting us, takes us away to the New Jerusalem to hide away while he comes down to, to destroy the wicked and uh, do the wrath of the lamb. Okay. And then the New Jerusalem comes down afterwards. So this is where when we die today, before the day of the Lord happens, we go to a holding cell. We go to a place of waiting. It's called Sheol. It's uh, and there's angels that guard Sheol. The um, I, I don't have all the quotations for you right now, but this is and the Spirit of the Lord is there as it is in all things. But it's it's definitely there, and there's angels there that are guardians over Sheol. We see that uh, explained to us in the Book of Enoch and other places. And this is where we are. We are there, waiting for our resurrected bodies. But that event only happens at the great first resurrection event. So hopefully that's a good quick summation to the to the question. Um, sorry, let me see if there's any more real quick. Looks like, okay, I already answered that question. Already answered that one, or at least tried to. All right, guys, let's, let's check the chat real quick. Thank you, David Cheer. You put the resurrection playlist in the chat. Appreciate it, man. Um, let me see here. Get righteous. 0303 is asking, why did God tear the veil in the tabernacle? Uh, we actually go over this in one of our episodes that we do. It's, it was in our kingdom portions. And see if I can find it for you real quick. And I'll show you where we talk about this in great depth. Because it's a great question. It's a great, uh, it's good conversation. It's basically about the nakedness of the priests. Um, the priests were corrupt. I'm giving you the short of it real quick, but you can go watch this Kingdom Portions episode and you can find um, us doing a lot more discussion and dialogue on it. So it's this. Let me actually drop this in the chat real quick. Is this, um, it's called The Veil is Torn. And it is in our Kingdom Portions playlist. Okay. You guys can go check that out if you'd like. All right. Checking out some other things in the chat. Let me see. He, yes. Liam, Yahweh, Akkad. This is why the statement in Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6 is so important. And what we're talking about after you die, waiting for the first resurrection so you don't have to be thrown in the lake of fire. And also, if you're if you're alive, this is that moment in the twinkling of an eye that you're changed, that 1 Corinthians 15, 15, 51 explain. And also Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, where he talks about those who are dead in Christ, they rise first, and then those who are alive and remain will caught, be caught up with them together in the air to meet Christ at his coming, right? Because Isaiah 26, 19, and 20 were raised and taken to the New Jerusalem by angels. Where Matthew 13, 30, where the wheat being taken into the barn, Whereas Yeshua is coming down with his warrior angels to, to battle the wicked and uh, to establish peace upon the earth so the New Jerusalem can set down. Um, let's see here. All right, guys. Um, let's see if there's any other. See if there's any other people that are asking questions. It looks like. <laughs> All right. Um, Andy Pandy's asking, 
Michelle put this on screen. Do the giants have souls? Are they what we now call demons? Yes, yes, and yes. That's why they are. And this is the book of Enoch explains this in great depth in verse in chapter 15 of the book of Enoch, or first Enoch, chapter 15. Also in Jubilees, chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, it explains to you that the the giants who were the offspring of the fallen watchers interacting with human women, that they were unclean spirits from the get-go. They were unnatural union and unnatural mixing of the two concepts of an angelic and a human, right? And that these offspring called the Nephilim in some passages, other times called giants, um, that they were abnormal. They were different, but they were not just on physical appearance, but also in their makeup, right? In their essence. So as a result, they, when their physical bodies died, um, there was a decision that had to be made after the flood where Noah is complaining that these unclean spirits are still on the earth. They didn't go to Sheol because they're not like man. They're, it's different. So he was complaining and God came to him and was like, all right, well, we're going to, and then Satan gets in the conversation and Satan's like, well, Hey, you can't take them all away. Cause then how am I going to tempt mankind? Like, how am I going to try to get them to do bad stuff? If you take all my, all my helpers away from me, um, because there's only one Satan. He's not God. He's very limited. He needs a workforce, right? Um, even though God uses the workforce, he doesn't truly need it if he didn't want it. But in this conversation, Jubilees chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, you see that Yahweh allows one-tenth of these unclean spirits after the flood to remain under Satan's control. And those are the things we see oppressing and tormenting people and trying to deceive people on the earth today. Those are the things we see Yeshua kicking out of people in the Gospels. Um, the other nine-tenths of them, they were sent into the earth and to be locked away to await the day of judgment. So they're, it's a bad deal for all of them. They're, they're unclean spirits. Um, James Carter's asking, could it be possible that the veil also represents the ferment of the day of the Lord? Um, kind of. Yeah. I mean, it's a little different. There's a specific context, James, to the, let me put your question on screen real quick. There is the specific context. I, I definitely understand the symbolism of what you're trying to, what you're trying to suggest. Um, Isaiah 64 one talks about rending the heavens like a curtain and Yeshua coming down or the father coming down. Um, no, I'm not saying Yeshua is the father as we've tried to emphatically explain on this, on this channel, Yeshua is in the agency of his father. So you can speak of them synonymously, uh, when it comes to the day of the Lord, because Yeshua is the one that actually comes and does the fighting. The father doesn't. So, so anyway, um, but Isaiah 64 one kind of uses that verbiage in a sense of rending a garment, which is the firmament itself to roll it back like a scroll to come down with the angels. And it's also got to be rolled back so the New Jerusalem can slide down through it. It's massive continent-sized city. So that's that would be the idea there. But as far as the actual application from what we discussed in that video that I linked in, up here, it's called uh, The Veil is Torn. It's on our Kenyan Portions playlist. Uh, the Testament of uh, Naphtali, I believe it is, and the Testament of Levi, it, it just talks about in great detail how that the veil will would be torn in the temple in the future specifically because of the rebellion of the Levites. So this was they claim this was also prophesied in the book of Enoch. And of course, as you guys, if you've watched my channel for some time, you know that the book of Enoch, the one that we have today, is not the all the original writings. It's actually a compilation of fragments that they've retained that they attribute either to Enoch or to Noah. And so it's not technically all the book of Enoch that's being referenced by some of the patriarchs. They had all of his writings. So apparently there's a lot of things that were prophesied in Enoch that were lost to time that the father then re-prophesied to other people down the road so that we could have it today. But 
there's a couple things that doesn't seem to be there that are mentioned, alluded to, and that's one of them is that that there was a prophecy specifically about the temple and the in the the veil temple that it was being torn as a representation of the corruption and the rebellion of the Levites and how they were no longer following Yahweh. And so their shame was being exposed. So something to consider. Um, let me see if there's another question real quick, but it's a great question, James. It's, it's definitely, I like the way you're thinking cause I'm the fundamentalist guy. So I definitely like the way you're thinking. Um, Richard Merritt's asking, I thought we were asleep waiting for a resurrection. This is a big conversation that we always talk about. Yes, it's spoken of as rest. It's spoken of as a place of rest. In 1 Samuel 28, Samuel comes up saying, who disturbed my rest? Um, we just thought, we just saw Habakkuk talking about being in rest, right? When the day of the Lord happens. And um, we see in, in, like I've mentioned before, first or Psalms 139, verse 7 and 8, talks about being in rest in Sheol. So yes, you are in a place of rest, but it's not sleeping like we attribute a synonymous concept between the word in English for rest and the word in English for sleeping. We, in our English language, we we make those basically the same thing. But in the Hebrew, in the application of the context of scriptures concerning Sheol, rest is a is a description of the place you're in. You're in a place of rest. You're not physically asleep and sleeping. Otherwise, Yeshua's parable in Luke 16 is inaccurate theological information because in his parable, everyone's awake in Sheol. <laughs> no one's sleeping. And um, I, I'm of the type of person that I don't think that our Messiah just made up stuff about the afterlife to prove a different point because he spoke nothing but truth. Okay. So we also see this in other places that there is a some level of consciousness in Sheol, where we await the resurrection. We also see this in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, where the souls under the altar are waiting their resurrection. They're waiting to get their white robes. They're waiting for the Lord to avenge their unjust murders, to avenge their blood. So there's only one place the Bible describes you waiting for that, and that's not in heaven. You're waiting in a place called Sheol. This is why Sheol was created, according to Enoch chapter 22, intentionally created to be a place to house disembodied spirits to await resurrection. So um, we have another question from Unbelievable Productions. So Sean, have you checked out the recently released the Lexham English Septuagint and includes Greek Enoch? I have not, brother. I might need to check that out. It sounds interesting. All right. So let me see here. Um, see if there's any other questions. <laughs> Richard Marriott, you're starting with Sheol, brother. Take your time with it, man. Um, it's actually one of the, the branches on our context tree is Sheol because that's how important it is to understand, to help you understand what Yeshua is prophesying about in parable form, what he's explaining to people, what the psalmists are talking about, what David's talking about in Psalm 1610. All over the place is Sheol. To understand the context of Sheol and how it was in, included in the creation model will greatly help you understand your promise and the day the Lord to be resurrected. Um, so there's there it's it is a huge point of context to understand the Bible as a whole. But take your time with the man. It takes time. We hear a lot of bad information from uh, mainstream churches that take stuff out of context, you know, that that um, don't research anything beyond the books that were given to them in their lifetime. So we we try to look at the books from history that ones that used to be in the Bible and ones that were put in other Bibles around the world and things that we can validate. And if you've never seen our series, Honor of Kings. 
on this channel, please go check out the playlist. I think you'll really love it. Season one, we dive into Sheol in great depth in uh, episode seven. Okay. All right. So yeah, EFTUPWRLD, you're right. Um, and Isaiah 14.9 is also a place where it mentions Sheol as well, for sure. All right. Let me see. Yes, yes. Andy Pandy is, is saying, I'm guessing you're you're quoting uh, Daniel 12, 1 and 2, and I'm guessing you're quoting it in reference to the resurrection conversation and the Sheol conversation. Like I said, yes, the metaphoric language of being at rest and coming awake is also spoken about in Isaiah as well. Um, this is, is the idiomatic language being referred to of the Messiah, that he is awoken from his sleep, basically. You're awoken to eternal life. It's a beautiful time to wake up, man. That would be an amazing time. That's the best alarm clock. It's the last trumpet is your alarm clock on the day of the Lord. And that's going to be amazing, right? Um, let me see here. Yeah, and speaking of Sheol, Benjamin Dio, Hicks of DOC, excuse me, Ryan Hicks of Benjamin DOC is saying, just remember Lazarus in the parable of Sheol by Yeshua says that Lazarus was comforted in Abram's bosom. And that's yeah, that's something to remember. A lot of people, they they do because they have so much misinformation about how the Bible describes Sheol and what it is that they think it's a, a scary place. They think it's a bad place, but it's a place of comfort for believers. It, it truly is. All right. So we have another question by Brian uh, Chelul. I hope I said that right, brother. It says, aren't the saints in heaven now since Yeshua went to Sheol and spoke freedom to the captives and they are now in the holy city? No. Matthew 27 is not the day of the Lord. It's not the first resurrection event. If, if you're new to the channel, please check out my first resurrection series. It's already been linked in the comments by David Shearer um, a few moments ago. And if you've never seen that before, please go check that out, brother, because you're, I go over all the scriptures. We even addressed Matthew 27. I address all the resurrections that are in the scriptures except for Jonah. Um, but I address the other nine regular resurrections in the scriptures and go over the context of them in contrast to the first resurrection event, which is where we get our eternal bodies. So the people in Matthew 27 were given a normal resurrection like Lazarus was. So they were brought back to life in this life, but they're not given an eternal glorified body that were promised on the day of the Lord. Big difference in context. So um, this is why Hebrews chapter 11 um, goes over all the patriarchs. And then verse 39 and 40 at the very end of the chapter, it concludes to say that all of these are waiting to be made perfect together. Right, because it hasn't happened yet. And as you know, Hebrews is written after Matthew 27. So the believers and disciples of Yeshua understood that the resurrection and all the patriarchs before Yeshua had not been glorified yet. They're still awaiting to be brought to life, which is the promise of the covenant. And that promise happens only on the day of the Lord. I cover these with lots and lots of scriptures in my first resurrection series. Please go check it out when you have a chance. Um, all right. Let me see here. Guys, if you're going to ask a question, try to ask a question that it try. I know we've got limited space in the comments, but tr do your best to make the question a full sentence. So I've, I get some kind of idea of what you're asking about um, doing partial sentences. I have no idea how to answer those. I'm sorry. So let me see if I can keep looking, but I appreciate everybody being here tonight. Hopefully um, I didn't disappoint anyone by telling you, you're not ever going to find the Ark of the Covenant until the day of the Lord, but that's, that's the conclusion from my study in search of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, let me see. 
like it. Yeah, James, James Apple, uh, he's making a point about Sheol where he explains that um, many people confuse Sheol for the lake of fire or Gehenna. And this is what I try to share with people in Matthew 10, 28. If you look in the Greek in that, when Yeshua says, don't be afraid of those who can just kill the body, but not the soul. Instead, you should be afraid of God who can kill both the body and the soul in, it says hell in the generic English translation. But if you look in the Greek, it says in Gehenna, which is the lake of fire. So it's, it's a big difference. Your, your body and your soul are not destroyed in Sheol because you don't have a body when you're in Sheol and your soul is waiting to get a body again. That's the point of that place. But once you get a body again, that's when you stand judgment for Yeshua and you're either given an eternal body, glorified body, as we've talked about in the past, or you get thrown in the lake of fire and you're, you're both your body and your soul are destroyed in Gehenna, the lake of fire. And you're, you're not in existence anymore. You're not burning forever like Catholics try to scare you with. Um, you're just out of the game forever. You'll never think again. You're, you're gone. <laughs> so it's there is no eternal conscious torment. That is a Catholic doctrine that we do not teach. The scriptures do not teach that. Yeshua did not teach that. There is emotional torment that's being taught in Luke chapter 16. So please look up the Greek. And, uh, and I guess ultimately you guys are reminding me that I need to get on my Sheol video. <laughs> I need to get working on it. Um, yeah, David Shearer, I appreciate you. He's asking people to be pithy. That's the idea. Pithy is not, sorry, is not sassy, but pithy is just meaning short and to the point with your question. But that means your question still has to have enough words in it to actually be a fully formed question. So, um, let me see here if I can see any other questions I may have missed. Um, and you guys, I am actually just confirmed that some of you guys are, are talking about the shape of the earth and some of the details therein. And I just confirmed that I will be doing a interview with Crow Triple Seven's assistant. Her name is Rose Triple Seven. And we're going to be talking about her coming to the awareness of the shape of the earth. And it's going to be interesting. So I'm going to do that for my upcoming podcast. If you guys didn't see my announcement that I made, I'm going to be doing a weekly podcast coming up. I want to start next week. I've been trying to prepare it as, as much as possible and that I'll be doing um, a podcast Monday through Thursday. So that way we can, and hope. I think I'm going to be doing it at, um, I think it's going to be nine o'clock at night. So that's nine o'clock my time and mountain standard time. And that way uh, we can do live interaction four or five days a week and cover a whole bunch of different topics with all types of scriptures. So I'm excited for that. And I hope you join me for the podcast. Also, if you guys didn't see my announcements earlier, um, I also wanted uh, to let everybody know that we have a secondary channel. I'm going to screen share real quick and I'll go to it so that you guys can see it. And it is, um, it's called new Jerusalem media and it's, we have actually, actually started a secondary channel where we are going to be doing actual news coverage from a biblical perspective. I'm not going to make it heavy handed on preachy. It's not going to be a preachy perspective. It's not CBN, but I definitely will be asking tough questions, doing introspective, introspective journalism and uh, making sure that we have an option as believers for um, the world to to question some of these narratives that are being thrown at us. Okay. So I just put this up this past week 
and it's uh, New Jerusalem Media. I've got a couple of videos already up. If you guys want to go subscribe to that, I'd appreciate it. It really helps us out a lot, as well as our website. Um, this is our website, newjerusalemmedia.com. And you can go there and look at different articles and um, just put that in your favorites list if you want. And I've got, uh, I even got the videos built in if you just want to watch the YouTube videos from the, from the website. So you guys can go see that. This is something that's been on my heart for a little bit. And uh, my wife can help me with it a little bit. And it would help us out a lot. Go subscribe to those channels. And uh, you can follow them on Facebook as well. We've got New Jerusalem Media on Facebook, Twitter, Twitter and Instagram. And, um, and you know, it'd be in where we can't cover all the every single story that's coming out by the mainstream media because that's a lot of them. But we try to pick as many as we can that we feel are relevant uh, that people need to know about. And as much as I have time that allows me to, because it actually, I actually try to research them so that I'm not, um, so that I'm not just, you know, I'm just doing good, honest journalism. That's the whole point. So, all right, guys, looks like we got some more questions here, real quick. Yeah, Chris Howard is asking, we're taking off topic questions. Yeah, I've already been answering off topic questions. So you're welcome to ask me, brother, what you want to ask. Um, you're welcome, Jimmy James. <laughs> so Jimmy James is asking, thanks for the study today. I think you're saying Ron Wyatt lied about finding it in Yeshua's blood. I don't know what he found, brother, but I know what the scriptures that I read to you tonight say. You be the judge. <laughs> Um, you be the judge. I don't know, man. All right. Let's see what else is up here. Um, uh, Ms. Blue Doves is asking about the new YouTube platform. It, it, oh, hang on a second. Where'd that go? It is coming along guys. Um, the programs are still working on it. It's just, it's a huge project and they've, they've encountered some setbacks because it's, it's going through a patent process and, um, they realize it's more complicated than they initially thought. And that's my fault. So, um, because my design is very interesting. And then that mixed in with some of the other developers uh, that I can't name their names. Uh, some of the people that are working on this and that have worked on it, their input into it made it that much better, but it also made it more complicated. And so um, if you're watching right now, you know who you are. Uh, is a good friend of mine, but I just don't want to say his name right now. And so that is taking the developers some time to, to, it's something like they've never seen before. So they're wrapping their head around it and they're trying to make sure that they get it working the way we want them to have it working. So we, we want it to be flawless when it comes out so that people can, uh, there won't be any question. People will just easily, easily move away from all these other places like YouTube and uh, BitChute and DTube and all these other places, DLive, whatever it's called, that uh, that will be, that we won't have any censorship and it'll be a place where people can freely grow again. So we're excited about it. All right, guys, let me see if I see one last question before I go. It's running up on, uh, I think, uh, almost two hours now. Okay, so let me see here. Shrat Shalom to you, uh, Charlie Hanscom. Thanks, man. Yes, there's lots of different. Uh, so, okay, I'm sorry. I'm reading a, another comment real quick. Yeah, Charlie, the podcast, hopefully, pray for me. Um, I'll be able to just start on Monday. That's what that's what my goal is. I would like to start it on Monday. And uh, I still got my Ezekiel's Bills video coming out soon. And I'm trying to finish that up. And uh, just trying to get all this stuff going through a learning curve with, with making sure I can do the podcast well, as well as um, working on the new uh, website for... Uh, 
for the news for New Jerusalem Media. So, all right, Chris Howard is asking, according to Frank Moore Cross, another Dead Sea Scrolls scholar, there's at least three families of texts at Qumran, the MT family, the Egyptian family, and the Palestinian family. Okay. Are you asking a question? Is that, I apologize, brother. Is that Was that an answer to somebody else? Because you asked about a question earlier to me. I don't know if you're talking to somebody else right now. If that is your question, um, please uh, try again to ask an actual question there. I apologize. I didn't see it or I didn't look at it again. Okay. But as always, guys, you can put a question in the comments afterwards after the live stream stops. Yeah, we've got um, people talking about Starlink. Yeah, I'm familiar with Starlink, and it seems like a. It seems kind of, <laughs> it seems kind of bogus to be honest with you. <laughs> what they say it's supposed to be doing and what they say it is compared to the practicality of what it is, um, does not seem to match. So yeah, it's very interesting. It's just we'll have to continue to gather research on it and see how it unfolds, and um, because yeah, it doesn't doesn't match up with what they tell us it is. So, guys, I appreciate everybody being here tonight. Um, I'm sorry. I don't see. I don't know if your your comment's not showing up, Chris. I apologize. I just saw the first part of your comment, and I'm not seeing the rest of it. So, I apologize, brother. Put it in the put it in the uh, comment of this video afterwards, and I'll try to get to it later. Um, but I appreciate everybody joining us tonight. I hope you have a great Shabbat if you're celebrating that today. Otherwise, um, we hope to see you uh, for the podcast next week. And uh, go sign up for the new channel that I showed you, New Jerusalem Media, and support us over there. That's where we're going to try to provide um, some truthful reporting. And uh, we're excited about that. So it's we feel like we need a good outlet for that. So please go, go over there and subscribe to that before you go. And then also um, share this video if it blessed you. So I appreciate everyone being here. Hope you have a good night. We'll see you next week.